Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther. I'm joined, as always, these three times by Aubrey. And uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, Aubrey, how you doing? I'm doing well, just wrapping up the week, which is always a great feeling. So. It is. Things are off to the editor, out of our hair. Uh, uh, not quite. We're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, what have you been writing about? Um, working on a piece about uh, the situation in Armenia um, with the, I guess, Azerbaijani invasion into uh, Nagorno-Karabakh um, and just talking about the genocide that is sort of happening um, and the possibility for escalation. Um, and really like what are what is the rest of the world going to do about it if anything it's kind of interesting because we're, we're coming up on the 30 year anniversary of the rwandan genocide which is a huge deal um and in that situation like the un had refused to had had moved out of rwanda right before the genocide happened because they saw it coming and then refused to call it a genocide until way too late um and almost a million people lost their lives, which is insane. So it's like, are we going to repeat that now, 30 years later? That would be, that, that would feel like we hadn't learned our lesson a little bit, so. Yeah, I, and we see this also with the Uyghur Muslims in China, is that yeah. being in the time that a genocide is occurring, it's more difficult um, than as we observe history, where we always think to ourselves, why weren't they aware of this, you know, during whatever time it may have been, and then you get your own experience with it, and it's like, okay, there are competing claims, there are a lot of political considerations, and we do think that people are dying in large numbers. And what is one to do about that? Uh, right. Because well, it's not definitely. it's not just a moral question. It's it has all sorts of other uh, factors that have to be considered, and that just feels wrong. Sorry, you were saying. Well, like in in the case of like the Uyghur Muslims, like the United States has said, like that this is actually an issue, right? Like they're they're willing to come out and say something about it. Um. In the Armenian case, they're just they're, they're labeling it a humanitarian crisis, but they refuse to say the word genocide. Like I was mm. scrolling through Secretary of State documents this morning for like an hour, looking for the word genocide and Armenia appearing next to each other, and nothing. So, um, which is kind of unfortunate. Like not even recognizing that that's a possibility, even though like the Azerbaijani government has threatened genocide if the Armenians don't cooperate so right and that has just such a bloodless sort of um, euphemistic term I mean we we live in an age of euphemisms of course with uh, pro-choice and all of that and we we don't like to say that some things are what they are and humanitarian crisis to me sounds like people don't have enough water bottles um, but it may be in fact, and likely is genocide, <laughs> like, yeah, call it that if that's what it is, let's not, um, pretend at things, even if it, you know, upsets some, um, 
foreign nation. Hmm. Yeah. So on that happy note, uh, you've <laughs> also been writing about who replaces Biden if he doesn't run. And I guess the first question is, do you think Biden is going to run? I mean, obviously he's running right now. I think there's a very real possibility that he doesn't. I, I What happened last week, Biden had a horrible week, obviously. Um, he like totally messed up his Vietnam press conference, announced that he wanted to go to bed, which is great, and then was escorted out to jazz music, which was interesting. <laughs> um, That's how I like to go to and, bed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, like, the Senate announced that they were, you know, investigating him for um, for impeachment. And so, yeah, it, it's just not a really great week. And so with that came a bunch of leftist columnists saying, well, you know, most Americans are a little uncomfortable with the idea that Biden is getting a little up there in age, and maybe we should consider running somebody else. And um and the New York Post, Peter Baker, I think, uh, responded to that and was like, no, no, Biden's great. And then like really far down in the, into the article, he kind of admits that like Democrats are actually talking about this, mostly behind closed doors, but they're, you know, they're talking about it. Like who comes next? And so I kind of engaged in a little thought experiment was like, okay, so if Biden can't run, if he somehow decides to drop out, um, and we're kind of running out of time for him to do that because the first primary is in early February um, for the Democrats. And but like if he did decide not to, if he mm. decided to drop somehow, like who's next? And so came up with a few suggestions. Um, yeah. Who's your uh, who's your pick? Who do you think would win if not Biden? Oh, who would win? That's a different. See, that's. That's a different question than who would run. Um, I think I think Gavin Newsom would have a good chance at winning, but I think that the Democrat Party would prefer to run somebody like Kamala Harris. They've said multiple times, like Gavin Newsom has said this, Gretchen Whitmer has said this, like, you know, Kamala Harris is the natural like next person because she is the vice president. So if she runs, They've already promised to support her. She's already said that she would like to run, sort of, maybe, um, more or less. <laughs> implied yeah. <that. laughs> so, like, I think she's got the Democrat Party support that she needs to win a nomination. But she's horribly unpopular. So, like, would she actually win an election? That's very unlikely. So, I mean, especially if she's going against somebody like Trump, who's way more popular than her yeah yeah there's a cnn poll uh released today from new hampshire and polling ahead of kamala is uh pete Buttigieg. uh hillary's pretty much tied with her gavin newsom's at 14 to kamala's three percent michelle obama's at uh five percent and who else do we have here Elizabeth Warren, eight, Bernie Sanders, 19%, uh, and then other, whatever that means, 20 <laughs> points. The most popular uh, candidate for the Democrats besides Joe Biden would be other. Anybody else, yeah. Yeah, so 
I think Kamala is a pretty good option. I think uh, I also listed like Gavin Newsom, obviously, Gretchen Whitmer, and Michelle Obama, who said that she will not run, but I think could possibly be persuaded into it if she could like be like, you know, democracy is maybe going to die if I don't run. Maybe she would run. <laughs> I don't know. The noble so that, sacrifice taking on all this. That would be the fourth term for the Obama administration, in effect. The yeah, two for Barack, one that is Biden, but Obama and everything but name. And then actual, actually Michelle Obama in the White House. Oh, boy. Well, that well, would when be- When she left the White House, she was popular. Was like 68% favorability rating as the first lady. It was when she left. And I mean, like, that's pretty good. So I could see her pulling out a pretty successful campaign. Um, maybe even winning. Yeah. So what do you think would have to happen for Joe Biden to not be the pick? Like, would he have to come out and say, I'm not running again for others to then jump in? Or do you think there could be an event where the others all pile on, um, whether it's with these uh, impeachment inquiries or something else about Hunter or some medical failure, non-fatal. What do you yeah, see? As... I, mean, I, think, I mean, where we are now, I think that he would have to be, he would have to announce it himself. I mean, like pretty much anything that a president, that would happen to a president to make, to make them, you know, back off saying like, I'm going to run has already happened to Biden. Like he's he's being investigated for impeachment. He's like clearly not able to keep going. Um but at the same time, like I, I like the other option I can think of is like if the Senate took Trump up on his recommendation and they were they said like this guy is disqualified. Like he can't, you know, he can't fulfill the office, you know, the office has been bestowed upon him i can't talk if they said that then and kamala stepped in until the election um that's the only other way i can think of it working like he's essentially disqualified from running because he couldn't serve as president the second term sure so yeah i do wonder if actually i think it's unlikely that that would happen agreed i don't think and I also think that Donald Trump polling as well as he is relative to the other Republicans. Uh, Democrats know that Biden can beat Trump. He did it once. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that gives Biden enough legitimacy as a contender that I, I think that's keeping even the most aggressive um, alternatives out uh, because yeah. if there were if you had a DeSantis at 40 or a Haley at 35 or a Tim Scott in that ballpark where you have this young um, vigorous sort of politician on the right Democrats might be looking at Joe and think oh boy it's just this is not gonna look good one next to the other right. Um, but because it's essentially a 
a rerun. Uh, that's what it's looking like anyway right now. Why not go with the, the proven proven fella, uh, especially right, if he's right. not willing to concede? Yeah, no, and it's, it's one of the few things where it's like, like Biden has the upper hand in the nomination. Like he has, like he beat Trump. So as far as Democrats are concerned, like just, let's just rerun him. And if people do pull out his age, like let's just remind people Trump is just four years younger. Like he's, there's not that much difference in age. Although obviously you can make a ton of other arguments about that. <laughs> there are some other lines of attack there. Yeah. It's it's a little frustrating that the Republican primary is it feels over already uh, in a lot of ways that we're now having to think about what the Democrats are going to do because 95% chance Biden is going to win the candidacy walking away, um, shuffling away, however he does it. Uh, but there's just no competition for the Republicans. So we have to cast about for uh, something else to discuss. And it, it's a bad sign that the incumbents are more interesting uh, than the opposition. Right. At least from where I'm looking at it. Um, yeah, anything else there? I mean, not much else. I, it's something that struck me while writing the article. I don't know if I actually said this. If I did, it's like down towards the bottom. There almost seems to be like a line the Democrats are supposed to be saying, like the the things that Gavin has said about the campaign and then the things that Gretchen has said about the campaign are, are very, very similar. Like we back Biden 100%, we're gonna back Kamala, I'm not running. It, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like, they're, they're being told by the Democrats, like, you've got to say this, you've got to back this guy. And so, and so when somebody like, you know, um, when somebody like says anything against it, like in the Washington Post, the Democrats are like, wait, hey, a second, or wait, wait a second, you're not like sticking to the party line. Like, we got the line, Biden's running. <laughs> Get the memo already. <laughs> check your email, check your spam folder. Come on now. Right. Yeah, I, d I do wonder, uh, looking at Biden and Trump next to each other, whether their last race, the two of them were the most popular by total vote count, uh, most popular candidates of all time in the United States history. Part of that is just because we have greater population than we ever did before. But uh, people got really invested in, in, um, in the race. And if they are the two candidates, I wonder if there might be some level of exhaustion where you're seeing two guys who have the same sort of familial shadiness and feeling like retreads that turnout might be a lot lower than people expect just because both of these men have parts of their parties that want no part of them. Wow, it's a lot of part prefix, suffix, uh, want no portion of, of these guys and just won't come out to vote except maybe for uh, down ballot uh, candidates and what that might do for both the Senate and the House. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, 
the, the thing that could change that is like whatever happens in the next year and a half like if there's an event people could come out and vote for like people could get excited again but as it is like if the if the election were this november like yeah there'd be really low turnout yeah it's just be like a collective meh <laughs> bit of a shrug yeah <laughs> be a great time. <laughs> Okay, so I, I re, I'm going to promote myself here shamelessly and say that what I wrote about for this Wednesday's newsletter was uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I think he even wrote a picture book called How to Be an Anti-Racist Baby, which I just, I just love thinking of a three-year-old with purple dyed hair shrieking at people but you know shrieking just because he's a three-year-old he doesn't really have any ideological feelings except that he should have all of the tonka trucks and the other baby should not <laughs> um because children are tyrants and we train some of them out of that um, and the rest of them run for congress so with ibram x kendi he uh capitalized <laughs> quite literally on the 2020 uh, racial uproar. And he found for himself, he found himself at Boston University with this, um, this Center for Anti-Racism. And he hired on a bunch of academics who are in that sort of uh, mindset. Uh, and we come to find out that he had to release almost half of half of the staff there. <laughs> because they're just out of money, where there's tens of millions of dollars poured into this organization from 2020 to 2021 uh, from corporations, especially in the Boston area, which is a, an affluent um, corporate uh, home, as well as um, well-to-do leftist organizations of various stripes. Um, and then people stopped donating, um, partially because there is an economic downturn, but also because there, there wasn't anything being produced by the center uh, for its two to three years of existence. It had two articles published, uh, neither of which were original to the center, except that um, scholars from the center were co-authors on these pieces. And so it's just further evidence that what we thought all along, that this was a racket, that it was, I called it a concession stand for indulgences, for left or progressive indulgences, that you just donate money because you want to feel like an anti-racist if you're uh, of the progressive mind. And then you stop doing it because you're not getting anything for your money. Uh, do I feel bad for anyone there? No, I, I can't believe Boston University allowed this to happen. And now there's an investigation onto what happened with all that money. Uh, but you know what you pay for, you get what you pay for. And what they paid for was feeling good about themselves um, in a transitory sort of way. And uh, Kendi's made, made a lot of money. So great for him, his books in all sorts of public schools. Love to see that. Um, 
But uh, what what can we take away from this, Aubrey? <laughs> Not sure. Um, what do you think? Like, I mean, like twenty twenty was really like the height of, I guess, propped up race tensions, and I feel like we haven't like it's just been on the downward. You know, the, the, there have been other issues like the trans issue that have kind of risen since then, and like, what do you think that impact has had on the center? I'm sure like that did not help them stick around a lot at all um or even get more funding at all it seems like in some ways that issue is kind of like a background hum and not it's it's no longer in the forefront of people's like i must virtue signal so therefore i have to donate to this anti-racist center now you're donating to the pro-trans center or the climate change thing <laughs> sunrise movement or whatever else yeah because so much of progressivism depends on signaling um to one another i th i think as you described there is this sort of uh pinball effect with funding where there's i don't know a pot of 500 million dollars a billion dollars between these organizations that they just move from one place to the next place as far as annual giving is concerned because there's nothing better than being able to announce that you are now supporting whatever new anti-racist pro-trans pro um or anti-book ban whatever is being discussed uh in salon and msnbc is what you want to be <laughs> giving your money to uh and you want everyone to know that you're doing that uh, so I don't think there's a really long tail on that funding. Instead, it's always best to keep it moving so that you can put out, I don't know, six press releases a year that you're now supporting the latest thing. Right. It's what's most popular at the time. So. Yeah. And these just don't seem to be lasting institutions, uh, nor do they seem intended to be that way where no you cash in now and then you go find that next thing and you make a a group dedicated uh to that idea at least for a year or two just as long as the check's right. clear yep yep for yeah sure. as i wrote it's good work if you can get it but man selling your soul i don't know well i'm sure kendy made bank off of it so well, yeah, Boston University's kind of find out. But yeah, as of I think it was already twenty twenty one, he'd sold two million copies of his book. Which, if you know anything about book sales, that is a lot of books. And the nice thing about writing for as a, a sort of progressive is every school, every library will buy your book. It's just guaranteed. Uh, because the National Education Association will push your book. Uh, the Library Association will push your book. And that's the way to do it. And you don't, no one's going to read it, actually. Maybe a few will, and I pity them. But the point is to have it and to show others that you have it and to uh, put it on your coffee table when your friends come over. Uh, I don't know. Sad. I compared it to uh, some Republican politicians having a pocket constitution 
that's just one of those like kind of silly things that actually I think I have um, mine right here that sometimes you just want to be like, hey, by the way, <laughs> I'm about that life. Uh, but I'll say the, the Constitution is a, is a much better thing to page through from time to time than a book filled with uh, absurd and uh, frankly impossible aims. Uh, Charlie Cook wrote for National Review that by Kendi's own standards for racism, because racism is anything that negatively impacts uh, black people, that Kendi's own center, because he had to fire, release a whole bunch of black academics, proves the, <laughs> the racism of Kendi's anti-racism center. Uh, which, yeah, when you make just absurd standards for what racism should be, you should be held held to those. But of course, Kendi won't be by anyone in his circle, which is a shame. Yeah. So anyway, Jimmy Carter, Carter and UFOs, you wanted to tell us about those. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was something I wrote about for my Substack. It still needs to get posted on the American Spectators website, but it will. Um, but yeah, so um, what was the year? Like in the 19, I want to say 70s. Yeah, I think it was like 1974. Um, Jimmy Carter was giving a talk in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, and spotted what he thought was a UFO and was really excited about it. So excited that he took four years to report it um, to anybody, like officially. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of an interesting, it just fun history fact. I, I enjoy those. So, <laughs> would you tell someone if you saw an alien? Would that would that be the first thing you'd do? I mean, I feel like I would tell at least someone. I so allegedly it was it wasn't necessarily it was an an alien. He had like seen um, somebody had told him that there was this weird like light in the sky. So he like walks out and he sees the light and it's like coming towards them, stops above the pine trees, and then like right in front of them and then recedes into the distance um, and is flashing like red, white, and blue. Cause of course it is. And <laughs> so, yeah. So he talked about it on his uh, campaign uh, for president and some reporter eventually asked him like, so does that mean you're just going to believe like all, you know, the UFO um, stuff like what what are you going to do about that and he's like well yeah I, I believe people like I saw one the interesting thing about the story is like his story doesn't actually line up like he claims to have seen it in September and actually he was giving a speech there in January so that doesn't work <laughs> the like the group he was giving a speech for wasn't even around in like uh, by October like they shut down um so <laughs> yeah like most UFO stories like it's really cool. And then it kind of like doesn't hold water when you get a little closer. So sorry, sorry to any UFO enthusiasts. So. Yeah. The, the most <laughs> convincing thing I've heard about UFOs is that the vast majority of them exist in countries that are post-Christian Christian. And so it's yeah. almost certainly evidence of people wanting there to be greater meaning in the universe. And since 
they don't accept God, there has to be some outward uh, creative intelligence um, within the galaxy. And so they want to see, and so they see. Uh, yeah. Works for me. Uh, what should uh, what should people check out on the website? Anything catch your eye? Uh, a few things this week. Um, this morning, uh, Josh Hammer had a piece about the whole thing with um, with Senator John Fetterman and the dress code in the Senate. They um, announced that there is no dress code anymore starting <laughs> Monday, which is going to be excellent. Um, and his piece was just talking about like, you know, they're kind of undermining our our norms by taking away this dress code. It's like nobody's actually thought to ask, like, is it a good thing to have a dress code? <laughs> maybe we should have a dress code. If there is no dress code, maybe we should still dress up in suits. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and yeah, to require really staffers to dress up, but not the senators <laughs> themselves. Like, right. okay, so we've got some serious double standard going on here, which makes it all that much more obvious that it's about Fetterman and not some greater movement to relax the dress code. Well, and I, I honestly think that most senators will probably stay in their suits and, you know, nice dresses and whatever else. Like, that's what you wear to be decorous. And maybe somebody somebody will, like, you know, dress in basketball shorts and a T-shirt just to be seen like, you know, they're more, what's the word? A man of the people? Like, you know, Man of the people are just, you know, they are standing with Fetterman and yeah. <laughs> solidarity, slovenly <laughs> solidarity. There we go. <laughs> I can get on board with that. Yeah. See, the second I heard about that, I just imagined some guy in, you know, like his Mickey Mouse slippers uh, running to, you know, take some great <laughs> important vote. And so you can just hear the flip, 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 flip of his um, slippers on the hallway you know like that's that's how we end it's a bright light and the flipping slippers of some congressman somewhere <sighs> yeah i mean it's in some ways it's like it's it's a long time in coming like the dress our opinion of ourselves and our ability to dress nicely in any given scenario has kind of gone out you know the window in many respects like I mean, everybody complains about people failing to dress properly in the airport or, you know, in public sure. spaces. Um, and like, eventually it was going to reach, you know, it, it was going to reach our representatives. It just was the kind of the inevitable. I, I don't even know if it's like the inevitable end, but it's definitely an inevitable step on a path we're on. So. Yeah, I will say though, uh, especially if there's anyone youngish listening, applies to everyone, but uh, it's never been easier to set yourself apart simply by being fairly kept and uh, putting minimal effort into your wardrobe uh, because I'm being able to tie a tie and use uh, shirt stays with your shirt so it doesn't wrinkle or bunch up around your waistband. I mean, you're going to be looking squared away all day 
Um, so I recommend that. That's a little Navy trick there. But um, you will go a long ways uh, just running with that. Uh, and people will say, oh, wow, it's so great that you dressed up. And you're like, Took me seven minutes. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So what about you? Any pieces jump out to you? Uh, the Russell Brand situation, Scott McKay was talking about that. And so Russell Brand, for those who don't know, he's a English comedian, personality, self-help guru guy. And uh, he had quite a past of drugs and womanizing and womanizing drugs. Um, and since, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, he cleaned up his life and has been in kind of the Jordan Peterson orbit, I would say, uh, big podcaster. And uh, there have been all sorts of accusations leveled against him. Now, Scott's point was I, that he cannot get too exercised about those accusations until Democrats take the uh, to read accusations against Biden seriously. Um, but again, it's in the post-sexual revolution world where casual sex is the rule. Uh, it, it's almost impossible to uh, litigate sexual encounters because there's almost never evidence beyond he said, she said. I mean, that's, there's a reason that's a cliche because there's no way to know. And usually there's some form of intoxication for both parties. Um, one whatever may have occurred uh, has occurred. And what is one to do about it, uh, especially years after the fact, after the uh, the ten year window has shut, uh, and I d I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, Aubrey. I mean, it's just really struck me like, like there's technically there's no legal evidence, there's no legal case at the moment, as far as I can tell. Like it's really just like unidentified women who have not come out and said who they are pointing fingers and being like you know accusing him of this thing which he may very well have done i mean like it was that time of his life um like it's totally possible it does make you wonder like is like should you be prosecuted for a crime 15 years afterward if there's no evidence and you've clearly cleaned up your act like it, I mean, it would at least be easier to prove if they had brought it up, you know, when it happened or even within a year or two, <laughs> but they waited 15 years. It's also terribly um, convenient for the left to be able to, you know, bring out this dirty laundry and air it for, you know, in front of everybody. And then YouTube demonetizes him, which is a huge thing. Although well, Right. And so. the... Uh... A UK council sent this sort of destroy this man's life and income yeah. letter to all sorts of um, platforms uh, trying to get him demonetized. It's like he's never appeared in court. These are these are unsubstantiated claims and that uh, a political authority uh, can send these sorts of letters just is shockingly quickly 
<laughs> we, we interact right. with the government all the time. They've never moved that fast in anything that's in my favor. I'll say that. Like working <laughs> with the VA, it is a matter of multiple phone calls over many months. And I'd say that's probably one of the better parts of the US government. Uh, but when it comes to uh, prosecutions and and sending out all sorts of cease and desist letters, man, really quick, amazing. It does make you wonder like why now for him? Like why, why attack him now? Like what did he do in the last month or two that, I, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Maybe need some research, but. Yeah, he's so just like a, a general yeah. skeptic of government power. Um, and he's, I, I mean, he's, he's a, a, yeah. Well, he's in that Joe Rogan size of audience. And so I think mm -hmm. his popularity, especially with young people. Um, especially with young people makes it as legislators are looking at so how can we protect the youth you know from malign right. uh, thinkers he's one of those so any chance they have to hit these guys instead of you know going after TikTok or you know political entities they'll jump on it as quickly as possible right yeah for sure yeah such is the way of the world. Um, <laughs> anything else before we get out of here? Um, I don't think so. I think you had a book recommendation that you had thought about. Oh, yeah. Uh, Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo, Dalton Trumbo uh, which is considered one of the great anti-war novels. And it's about a quadruple amputee who had his face also blown off in World War I. And the book was a big deal because it was published right before World War II. And so Trumbo was considered this uh, subversive writer uh, by the FDR administration because <laughs> they thought he was writing again against them. And he was like, no, I'm just anti-war. And then there was a whole bunch of anti-interventionists who were like, Trumbo, Trumbo. But he was a, a real lefty who was kind of embraced by the isolationist right. And so it's just one of those funny quirks of history that um, you don't really get to choose when your book is published and <laughs> who likes it. Uh, because I think he really thought kind of the socialist left, who's typically anti-war, uh, was going to be all over it, but in fact, it was kind of the opposite end of the political spectrum that really took it up as a banner. Um, but what I like about the book is that war is, uh, is a nasty business, shocker. And well, I, I am in favor of more intervention than I think some on most, some on the right are. We should be clear-eyed about what the costs are. When we get into conflicts, we like to herald these soldiers as something other than men, other than men and women uh, who are creatures of the flesh. 
And the truth of it is there are hundreds of thousands destroyed by these conflicts. That doesn't mean the conflict is necessarily wrong. It's just that the conflict has, has a price to it that we don't want to think about when we're in the middle of the fight. Right. Uh, but I think we owe it to the soldier and I'm coming from a Navy background um, that <laughs> if, I, if I was blown up, uh, th that I would want people to still treat me as a man, even if I couldn't communicate, if I couldn't move my legs or my arms, uh, that there are uh, soldiers still in VA hospitals dealing with the injuries that they sustained 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and so when we think about veteran care, you don't get to say, I'll pay for the war, but I won't pay for the results of that war. I'm sorry. It's, it's built into the conflict. Uh, and the public needs to understand that and not look away from it just because it's as hideous as it is. So I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't recommend the book to just anyone, but I do think most people should at least try reading it and uh, go as far as you're comfortable with. But um, it's a story of, of an American boy who didn't really know why he went overseas, um, but finds himself um, kind of strewn on this French bed. Uh, and he doesn't even know how he came there or that it is French because he can't see, he can't hear. All he can do is communicate by knocking his head against his pillow. So <laughs> on that happy note, we wish you the, the very best weekend. Uh, so for Aubrey, I'm Luther. Thank you for listening to the Spectator PM podcast.